Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast. This is your host, Stephanie Sorensen, and today I'm meeting with Scott Livingston. He wrote a book called Beauty for Ashes, and today we're going to be talking about how we can learn from Jesus Christ how to endure life's greatest pains, sufferings, and sorrows. Scott Livingston is originally from Oregon. He is a BYU graduate. He actually specialized in theater and film with screenwriting and is his main area of focus. Although he spent the better part of his career in marketing and sales, he's recently begun to do a lot more writing. He currently has a screenplay in production. We're grateful to have him here today. Thank you, Scott. So glad to be here and excited for the opportunity. Could you just tell us a little bit about how this book came about? You didn't necessarily have a background in writing LDS nonfiction, no, but what drove writing what you did? The experience was a gift. The opportunity to learn as I wrote, kind of a fun revelatory experience, if I can use that word. A lot of the time that I would spend working with Latter-day Saints and people who needed help, who were struggling with an issue, whether it was family, whether it was trying to how to process suffering. How do I actually deal with the fact that life is not fair? Of course, of a lot of those experiences, I started to realize that as I was sitting and working with them and studying the scriptures together with them and then independently from them, I was learning some principles that were very relevant to my life, to my own personal situation, to my, to my needs, but also helpful to them. One of the things that I found pretty consistent in terms of where people struggled is the gap between an invitation to receive the atonement of the Savior, to act upon the things that he's done, and knowing how to do that. How do I actually do that? really kind of started when I served as a bishop a number of years ago, started to see a pattern of people who came, good people, people who were hurting, people who were trying to solve issues and challenges, didn't really know how to take that leap across from the doctrine to the application of it, right? And that's where I think this kind of came, is how do I help them? The original subtitle of the book was actually Becoming the Christ-like Response. And that came kind of as a discovery for myself again, is that we are trying to give that response, but that ultimately the hope, I think, of, of heaven is that we would actually become more like the Savior and be able to respond almost reflexively to those interactions that are not ideal, that are hurtful even, that are very offensive even, or, or abusive. So in your book, as you've already mentioned, you focus on using the power of Jesus Christ's atonement to overcome the pain of negative interactions with others. This is one thing that you stated. You said, of the many tests that make up mortality, how we respond to the ones that occur in our human interactions and relationships will largely determine our happiness in the life to come. I have found that my happiness here mm -hmm. is also greatly dependent yes. upon the health of my relationship with others. Absolutely. And why is that? There are so many other trials that we face in this life. There's sickness, disaster, failure, other disappointments. Yeah. But what is it about trials in relationships with other human beings that so acutely triggers our need for healing? Maybe at the heart of it is the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to be in eternal, unified relationships. When we go to the heart of our doctrine, it is the hope that we will make it home safe, 
to live forever in the presence of our heavenly parents as families, as those bound together in eternal harmony and unity and so forth. If we're trying to get to that and we have variance in terms of our mortal experience with people, that's where we see it. We yearn for that more than anything else. It creates a gap we, between what we're experiencing yes, and the ideal. Right. right. We want, we crave unity. We crave at one And what does the Savior offer? He offers that in a more profound way than we can have in any other type of effort to get to that. He is the way to do that, to achieve that. So it makes sense if we're at odds with someone, if we've been hurt or even have hurt someone, that there's an internal friction that that creates. There's a tension spiritually that just comes out of that. Okay. As you've counseled with individuals and couples, what have you found to be some of the most frequently misunderstood doctrines about the atonement of Jesus Christ and how it's applied? Probably maybe the most frequent is that we limit it. We put a cap on it. For example, we often hear the the scripture from 2 Nephi, where Nephi says, for we are saved by grace after all we can do, right? And I think that sets us up because we, I think, misinterpret that Mm -hmm. as I've got to do a bunch of things first. Mm -hmm. I've got a spiritual checklist I have to tick off. And then he'll come in and put the frosting on it. There you go. (laughs) He'll, you know, he'll come at the moment that we've done and only at the moment that we've done all that we could first, right? right? So it's sequential. We say we have to do, and it's, you know, 1% or less, but we still have to do our part. And then, and only then, will he come and make up the difference. And I don't at all think that's what Nephi was teaching. Right. As I have sought to understand that better, my feeling has been that, no, he is there every stretch for every second of those steps that we are taking. And so I think that's one of the ways that I have found people often struggle is, well, I have a part to play and he has a part to play. Yes, we have to do some things. We do have to act upon invitations. But it's not necessarily different lanes. It's not different lanes. It's not. It's the encircling arms of the Savior wrapped around about us, carrying us through this entire process. And in the course of that, teaching us by the Spirit how to act. Here's how to respond. Here's how to listen. Here's how not to react to this very hurtful thing that just happened to you. Instead, let me teach you how I would do that. Let me teach you. And and often we find that in the scriptures that he has already showed us how to do it. Let's go a little more into these negative interactions or bad experiences that are hard to heal without his help. The title of your book, Beauty for Ashes, mm-hmm. I've always understood that phrase to mean consecrating our, su- like I think of Joseph Smith and Liberty Jail, yes. right? You know, consecrating our sure. suffering and making something good and wonderful out mm-hmm. of it, or at least out of us because of those hard things. Mm-hmm. But your book explores the importance of us giving beauty for ashes when right. we've been hurt. Right. Why is it important to take on this Christ-like role? In the most simple way I could put it, it's because that's what's required. If we are really to become even as he is, that's the invitation, that's the commandment even, is be ye therefore perfect even as I or your Father in heaven are perfect, then ultimately we're going to have to act like they do, feel like they do, think like they do, and become like they are. And that's not a post-mortal only thing. I really believe that unless we can become 
more like they are here and respond more like more like they would here through their help, with their help, because of their help, that we're, in a sense, we're stuck spiritually. Let's deal with the day-to-day grievances because we have lots of opportunities sure. to practice forgiveness. Yes tolerance, to extend charity because we are hurt, offended, misunderstood, disappointed many times, right? I have spent a lot of time in my own life thinking that I'm pretty good at forgiveness because I don't harbor any long-term grudges against people who have wronged me in large and painful ways. But as I read your book, I realized that some of the emotions that I often feel as a wife, as a mother, in my own relationships, like the disappointment or feeling misunderstood or underappreciated, for example, are actually subcategories of a failure to forgive. That was enlightening to me. I find myself often clinging to unmet expectations and being resentful. And this can obviously rob me of the joy of daily interactions. We see these examples of large-scale forgiveness, but what insights can you offer about tapping into the Savior's atonement in these smaller, more frequent offenses? There's nothing too small. There's no experience. If it touches us, if it speaks to our feelings, if it impacts us spiritually, physically, emotionally, in in whatever ways, then he is interested in it, that he wants to help us in the experience. Now, often we understand that the Savior's role is not to just fix everything or protect us from everything. Elder Holland says, if we really believe that love equals protection from suffering, then what does that say about how God felt about his only begotten son? If that were a true principle, that would totally blow that up because it, it would not work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't process. We're placed in a mortal environment to learn how to respond, to learn how to act, to learn how to change the way we are. You know, the moments of wrestle and struggle that we all face, it's this power that fills the gaps, that fills in those moments. I'll share an experience. It speaks to maybe your question. Wonderful, wonderful sister who my wife and I both know, love her, love her family. In the last few years, some things happened in the marriage that uh, things that came to light that she wasn't aware of and had been going on for for some time to the point where the, the marriage really couldn't endure. This person felt very deceived, felt very much as if she had been sold a bill of goods and was very clearly hurting. So one evening, my wife and I are over in the Mount Timonogos Temple doing ceilings, and she comes in the room by herself to come and do temple work. And we're excited to see her, and we welcome her, and and got to serve together for that time. And then, as you can, we went from there to the celestial room. And she came in, and she came over to us and and kind of sat between us. And uh, it was very clear. I mean, her face just kind of reflected the very clear deep emotional pain that she was going through. That night, she could come to the temple because her ex-husband had the kids, and that was conflicting for her for a number of reasons. So we sat there and just talked very quietly, of course, for a few minutes. And into my mind came a scripture that I had never thought of this way before from Mosiah. It's Mosiah chapter 15, verse 9. It says this, Having ascended, talking about the Savior, He having ascended into heaven, having the bowels of mercy, being filled with compassion towards the children of men, standing betwixt them and justice. And the word betwixt 
was the one I was like, now, I don't ever use the word betwixt. I use the word between, which is essentially what that word means. Right. But, Stephanie, into my mind came an image, which I shared with this sister. I said, I want you, if you can, to picture him standing between you and all of it. Can you see him standing there? If it's that hurtful thing that's being said to you or about you, that offensive thing, that obvious evil thing that has happened, do you see him there? Can you have him there? Can you place him there? And that really clicked. It clicked for her. I I could see it click for her. And it was like, again, one of those moments of, I don't know where that came from, but, but, well, I do, but, uh, but clearly that's a principle that I think the Savior wanted her to understand is that when he says, I'm standing between you and whatever it is that's coming at you, he means it. It's and real. justice, which in yes. many cases is the consequences of, yes, of actions right. and things. And we're hurt. Yes. We're hurt by the things that justice demands. Yes, true. You mention in your book that not taking offense yes. is a critical part of learning to give beauty for ashes. Right. One of the tools that you talk about as an important part of that is prayer. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit what that looks like to use prayer as a way to save us from our natural tendency to harden our hearts against yeah. people who are hurting us? Prayer for me is the difference between an open hand and a fist. As long as I can keep my hand outstretched to you, to someone, to an offender. I mean, the symbol of that to me is personified perfectly by the Savior's, my arm is stretched out still. That open hand in contrast to the fist, right? The fist is symbolizing I'm done. I'm shut off. Now it's adversarial. Now it's me against you. But I control that. I control that decision. I get to decide, do I keep the hand open or do I clench it in a fist? And prayer for me is the way that that helps me. That helps me keep the hand open, unclenched, stretched out still. Would you be willing to elaborate a little bit about, we're speaking in hypothetical terms, I guess, but what those kind of prayer conversations could look like to move from that fist to that open hand? What are the things that we are asking for? What are the things that that we're trying to draw upon? In the 46th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, there is some teaching there about praying by the Spirit. There were some really powerful things. And I think that what I'm, I'm learning, no, by, no, by no means learned, but, but still learning to do is to really, in that prayer experience, to close my mouth and open my ears. To be able to say, teach me what I should be praying for, how I should be praying, what should I be asking for? I think prayer is the Father's way of tutoring, mentoring, directing, and guiding. Why does Nephi say pray always? Why why does the Savior say pray always? As long as we can keep that channel open, that hand opened, symbolically saying, help me interact, help me respond, I'm hurt. It reminds me of how President Nelson spoke about drawing upon the power of the atonement. And he uses the example of the woman with the issue of blood and the outreach of her hand. So this symbolism plays into that. And that literally using that outreach as a way to draw the power of the Savior into our lives. One of my all-time favorite examples. Let's go back a little bit to the experience that Elder Robin shared about in that marriage situation. Forgiveness is especially hard when you know you are right about something. Yes. (laughs) How can the power of the atonement, the power of Jesus Christ, help us to navigate 
righteous indignation. You know, I think what I would say is what we have to do in that is ask the question, how would the Savior respond? Did he have any experiences where he was right and others were wrong? All All of them. Time. (laughs) All of them. All the time. And yet we look at the response of the Savior to those interactions is consistent. It's consistent that he beholds the individual and focuses not on what am I going to get out of this, but what can I give to them in exchange for what they've done to me, how they've mistreated me or said something or done something that's offensive. I would say that that type of a situation that we all have, we all have things where we are right, where we didn't do something hurtful. Abuse is one good example of that, where, and people struggle with that because they think, well, did I have some part of this? Was I the cause of it, right? And we try so hard to say, absolutely not. There is never a case where abuse will ever be justified. But in such situations where you you are not the offender, you still have, as we're told in the Doctrine and Covenants, you must forgive all men. It's required of us. And in fact, stunningly, we're told that if we don't forgive, in us is the greater sin. Now, that's where we kind of, wait a minute, are you kidding? How is that possible? How can that be? I think it comes back to the concept of what the role of the Savior's atonement is really all about. It's to bring about that at one moment. And again, that idea of standing between us and justice, right? That he will handle the justice part and feed us what we need. There you go. For us, it's not to say, what do we do? We, We, in essence, we cut off his ability to do that, or at least suppress it. If we say, I'm going to administer justice here, I'm going to let you have it, because what you did was absolutely not okay. Now, do we have those moments where we may need to do that even? Yeah, we do. I think we look at the model of those stories in the Book of Mormon, where continuously you've got an adversarial party coming at the Nephites, in most cases, to attack. And you'll get a group of people saying, hey, can we respond to that? Or we can, can, let's just, instead of waiting for them to come, let's go after them. Let's take the offensive versus the defensive position. And I think the Savior says, I model the way to do that. Stand up for yourself. You need to have personal integrity to protect you. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely good. But do it my way. Respond my way. You know, I have situations, for example, where couples are ultimately deciding to divorce. You know, we don't counsel them to do that. We work hard to help them not do that. But there are cases that ultimately lead to that. And something I'll often say to those folks is this. There's no such thing as a Christ-like divorce in the sense that he never wants that to happen. I mean, especially a temple marriage. We don't want that marriage to end. But can you be a Christ-like individual in a divorce. Yes, you can. And if both parties did their best to act as the Savior would, even in a very, very painful situation, I think that everybody comes out of that intact. It can at least maximize the healing potential. You would hope so. That's the goal. So often those situations are so emotionally wrought and so intense and painful that it's hard to do that. It is hard to do that. I understand. Becoming like the Savior is the most rigorous, most demanding... (laughs) Curriculum. Yeah, yeah, thing that we ever will do. But it is what he's inviting us to do. But not just saying, do it. He's saying, 
I can show you how. I can teach you how to do it the way I would do it. He constantly offers that help, that grace. In your book, you talk about the importance of learning to love others without condition or exception. Elder Christofferson taught that the descriptor unconditional does not appear in the scriptures. We misunderstand that idea of unconditional when we believe that God tolerates and excuses anything we do because his love is unconditional. If I understand Elder Christofferson correctly, God's love is always available to us and cannot be diminished, but his blessings are withheld when we fail to keep his commandments. Right. How can we draw on this power of Jesus Christ yeah. to better understand the space that we have to extend that grace towards others? I think that comes back to agency. There is that concept of a gap between what's done to us. Viktor Frankl is the one that kind of introduced that in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. That moment of stimulus of someone did something to us, and now we're in a moment of acting. Instead of being acted upon. You know, Elder Bednar loves to teach us about that. So there is that space. Now, that can be absolutely minuscule, mm-hmm. where our response is, is so instantaneous that we didn't take any time to reflect, to go inside ourselves and say, what's the right thing to do here? It's, that's incredibly hard to do. Right. When our feelings have been hurt, when we have been offended, when we have had something unkind or abusive occur... We want to respond. We want to react. We want to defend. We want to, to stand up and protect ourselves. But I think that concept of him stepping into that space with us and saying, let's put a pause button on this, this experience, a lot of that is I've got to walk away. It's, it's, the, it's the count to 10 idea, right? right? Of you hurt me, you did something to me, I need to step away from it. And from the immediacy of this moment and absorb and process. And I think that's where the power for me is where it, it gets multiplied. Yeah. As you're saying that, the thought comes to my mind, this idea of the pause button. Yeah. If we could be better at that, yes. we could negotiate our response. Totally. And it wouldn't have to be just ours. We could do Correct. that response in conjunction with him as it, a team. We, it becomes bring the him into, response. Bring him into our reaction, right. that we react together. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting way to look at that instead of just it all comes from us, the right. way that we respond. You know, that idea of condescension, when Nephi's asked that, that word is, you know, it's a negative word that we use in, in you know, condescending. That's not at all what he's teaching no. us. It's to descend with. Yeah. That's exactly what Nephi teaches. When he's asked that question, knowest thou the condescension of God? I know that he loves his children. I do not know the meaning of all things. Then he is then taught, he's shown what the condescension of the Savior actually means. It's to him to come down into our experience, into the particulars, the specifics, the everydays, the tough moments, the hard interactions, the painful unkindness. The lowest places. The lowest places. He can go to that place. He can go to that level. We cannot suffer beyond his reach or his understanding. We can't have the kind of experience that he won't understand, or he'll just be like, you're on your own here. Never. He never, ever will. But so often we say, I've got it. I'll take care of it. I don't need you. And well, there we go. We're off in the weeds in those moments. And then our responses to those situations cannot be Christ-like because we've excluded him from them. Sure. It's much harder. 
It's right. much harder. Yeah, if you're seeing it, you're interpreting it through his eyes. You're interpreting it through his response to how he might act in that situation. To the best of our ability, all those spiritual activities are intended to help make our heart right so that it's aligned with his heart and acts as he would. Okay, let's finish with a simple phrase from your book that had a profound message for me. Mm -hmm. You wrote, the Savior never allowed the way he was treated to determine how he would treat others. Right. And as you've already alluded to, this is really hard to do. It it is hard. It's hard hard to do that. To finish up here, if you could just kind of offer some final thoughts. When we recognize negative patterns of behavior in our interactions with or our feelings towards others, if we truly want to change that and overcome those bad habits, how do we begin in a way that brings the Savior's help? Again, back to the discussion of prayer, you have to start on your knees, and I think you have to start in, uh, I would say, even specifically the Book of Mormon. If we go there and and ask again ourselves the question, why were we given what we were given in the Book of Mormon? Why do we only have what we're told is a hundredth part of what was there? And then we go to the title page, which says it's intended to help us to convince us, interesting word, convince us that Jesus is the Christ. Interesting idea. Why do I need to be convinced of that? I need to believe that he is who he says he is. Even in my life. Even in my life. That I need to believe that he is who prophets have said he is, who the Father has said he is. Because if I really, truly am convinced of that, and the Book of Mormon does it better than any other book of Scripture that we currently have, it convinces us and teaches us of the doctrine of Christ, those core root principles of faith, repentance, baptism, receiving the Holy Ghost, enduring to the end. That is kind of this cyclical, ongoing, repeatingly, Uh, needed process. That's where I think you have to start, is wherever you are, get on your knees, if not actually, at least in your mind, and in that kneeling, submissive position, begin the process of saying, I hurt. I don't like that person. She, he hurt me. They've offended me. They've done me wrong. And and I'm mad at you. you. How could you let this happen? If we spend the time, whatever time it takes, then I think we can get there. You know, there's a, I think I shared a little story about Brigham Young chastising a, one of his employees who had accidentally allowed his favorite saddle to fall to the ground in the stable and get, get dirty. And he just let them have it. And uh, I think Hugh Nibley tells the story. And in essence, they leave chasten, berated, and Brigham's comment at that moment is, Brigham, get down, get down. And in essence, he's realizing, I just did him wrong, and I've got to get on my knees to make this right with God, and then I'm assuming that he reached out to that person and hopefully made it right with them, right? right? As a, maybe a concluding testimony, if I can share this, that's how I begin the book, and it's because of, I think it captures the Savior's way. And it's from the night in the garden 
when he's taken those those 11 there, he, he has the eight of those 11 wait, we don't know where exactly, but then takes Peter, James, and John further in. And then it says he falls on his face and, you know, in agony begins this process. You know, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Uh, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then, and then they witness, for whatever length of time that occurred, this awful thing that was happening to him where he was experiencing all of it. He was reversing position. He was going from a state of purity, absolute unity and oneness with the Father to being the worst possible kind of sinner. To feel what it felt like to murder, what it felt like to abuse, what it felt like to offend another. All of it. He was going through, and that's part of, I believe, why it hurt so badly why it was so agonizing for him was that he loved the Father and had perfect unity with him and to now know how it felt to offend that, to violate that, to turn against it was, I think, absolutely agonizing for him. Well, okay, so he goes through that process and then exhausted, drained physically, literally, but also deeply, deeply hurt emotionally, and spiritually. spiritually. He comes back now and again. Of course, we know he's already come out twice and said, wake up, please, just watch with me one hour. But now, here they are again, sleeping. In Matthew, where where we read that account, it talks about, he says, sleep on now, take your rest. The next verse is, is, rise, let us be going. So we kind of have this image in our mind of them jumping up and, and, you know, here comes Judas. Well, Joseph Smith adds nine words to that story in the inspired version, which is between those two verses, and after they had slept, he said unto them, rise. Now, in my mind, and this is again just what I have felt to be an important little sliver of truth that that Joseph gives us here, is an image. And the image, Stephanie, is of the Savior in this moment of greatest need. Never up to that point, at least, had he felt like he felt right then. Never up to that point, as far as we know, had he ever hurt like he hurt right then. Never had he been more exhausted and spent and drained than he was at that moment. And yet, who does he tell to rest? Does he say to them, let me rest? Now, there were four people in that experience that we know of. And yet, of the four, who needed rest? Who needed to have gratitude, love, comfort, any more than he did. None. And yet, even in that moment, there he is watching over them, standing guard, so to speak, over them. That, for me, is the perfect symbol of what it means to give beauty for ashes, that the Savior teaches us how, even in our moments of greatest agony, of greatest pain, of greatest suffering, he can teach us how to respond as he would, and as he did. And thus, if we'll invite him to do that and we'll bring him into our experiences to the most intimate and personal degree possible, he can teach us how he did it, how he would do it, and then help us ultimately do it as he would. That's, for me, what it's all about. Thank you so much, Scott Livingston, for being with us today, sharing your thoughts about how to learn from the Savior to endure pains, especially in our relationships with others. Thank you.
Thank you. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.